Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which two fans usually cast their combined eye over games on at Leeds United, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Elland Road. However, there is going to be no statistical analysis going on on this podcast today. I'm John McKenzie, the Brian Clough of Leeds fandom, and I'm joined by Tom Woodhead, who's more of a David Peace, I think. Tom, how's it going? <laughs> I'm not too bad, yeah. Yeah, he's just been giving me a virtual tour of his studio, which has been great fun. Um, so I'm I'm really in my element right now. But we are not talking about music production uh, and mastering. We are, in fact, talking about the phenomenon of The Damned United, which you may have seen as a film or may have read as a book. Um, we have both seen the film and read the book. Well, I've read most of the book. I think, uh, Tom, you, you flew through it in, in the last few days. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the, a little bit of the history behind it, how accurate a representation of that history it is we're going to talk about some of the aesthetic sides of things uh, the difference between the book and the film uh, the the process that, that they've gone through in making a film on the basis of the book and uh, I think we'll we'll talk about the the impact that the whole phenomenon has had on the fan base because that's something that I particularly find quite interesting particularly with my friends who are maybe younger who um, have built their whole I think opinion of, of someone like Brian Clough and Don Revy on on the representation uh, of the film I think the best place to start from tom is maybe just giving giving a little bit of biographical detail about how you came across the phenomenon in the first place did you what did you watch the film read the book and then watch the film and 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 how did how many times have you seen it how did you um come back across it recently i've seen the film uh i guess three or four times now i probably first watched it not that not i didn't i don't think i first watched it when it came out um i maybe saw it five six years ago and then coincidentally i actually watched it about three or four months ago so it was quite fresh in the memory when you asked me to do this and then obviously i've rewatched it this week uh actually one and a half times i fell asleep during the second time but it's nothing to do with the film that's just to do with my body um <laughs> are you generally a fan um i enjoyed it it's, it's a weird one i actually have enjoyed the film less the more i've seen it um i enjoyed it quite a lot the first time and in in fact all the times i watched the film before i read the book i enjoy it i, I enjoyed it a lot more than i did after i read the book the book sort of shed a different light on the film for me what do you think that was uh, that that 
different light that was shed it was the the book um it does it has a certain sort of timbre and a kind of a kind of feel to it um that's sort of grand and uh mm. quite very serious very dark but sort of um it has it has the feel of good literature in that it mm. it transports you there whereas i felt like i was watching through more of a window after after uh seeing the film especially it, it just fe- it felt overly jaunty did the film after after reading the book but seeing the film for the first time it didn't feel particularly jaunty to me mm. yeah that's really interesting because i think i share that experience as well i think i used to enjoy the film and I don't feel like I enjoy it anymore. I don't know whether or not that's because I've seen it so much, but um, I watched it this week with my little sister, who's not a football fan in any sense, um, and she quite enjoyed it. And I think maybe there's a sense in which, if you don't know the history, it's quite a good story. Um, it's quite it's, it's quite interestingly filmed, I think, and uh, that the aesthetic's good, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's a bad film. I, I still think it is a good film, um, but it. I think it's deliberately surface level and it's deliberately kept quite light um, in a way that doesn't feel necessarily light if, you, if number one, you don't know the story and number two, you haven't seen it a bunch of times. I wonder whether or not that was because the the book was so controversial in many respects when it came out in terms of the the subject uh, matter and the content of that subject matter. I wonder or not whether or not the the filmmakers really wanted to downplay the darker the darker elements of it. Well, it's understandable as well because I mean I know that around the time the book came out, the Clough family was very unhappy with it, and you can totally see why because if someone wrote a book like that about my fairly recently deceased dad, I'd be furious to be honest. Like to be able to you know some of the stuff that he thinks in his head is. It's pretty nasty in the book. So to take those kind of liberties with somebody who, you know, is pretty recently deceased at the point that the book is written, isn't he? Um, it's It feels, I don't know, I, I, as I say, I enjoyed the book, but I'm not sure about the ethics of it. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a really fascinating thing. And I don't think anyone really comes out well from from the book. I mean, the book and the film, right? The, it, it's it's done a pretty good job of, of sort of casting aspersions on everyone. Although maybe, yeah. I don't know, I think maybe I think that the, the film itself maybe casts cloth in a better light. I don't know. I don't, know, I don't even think that's true. Well, I, I would say it classes him in a better light than the book does probably. But, yeah. but it also, it downplays some of his genius in the in the film i think as well yeah it downplays some of the stuff that he did get right because it doesn't a lot a lot of the thing is that you know his good points and his bad points are one and the same um a lot of the time so the film sort of downplays the good and the bad i think i think the the film to me came across as very pro revy um in a way that the book couldn't obviously because a lot of the book is told from the perspective as you've mentioned of brian clough um whereas the film i felt really didn't give cloth much of a hearing and even i know we both went back and listened to the watched the the yorkshire tv interview that was done with was it, is it austin mitchell is that his name um that was the, the the infamous uh tv interview where they were um both sat down immediately after cloth's lost his job um and i think if you listen if you watch that um interview i came out of that interview feeling quite sorry for cloth um, I got the impression that Clough wasn't quite as intransigent as a lot of people have said that he is. And I think he also does a really good job, Clough, of coming out of that being like, you did things differently. And what I'm being judged on here is not not being Brian Clough, but just not being Don Revy. And um, I don't know whether or not you would agree with that, but I, it really made me think um, about, about the pr- presentation of Clough and how much of that um, presentation in that film and in the book has actually then influenced the way that people, particularly Leeds fans, think of him. 
Yeah, it's interesting because Clough, the the, th- the thing that in the book and the film as well, though, Clough sets his stall out as as manip- as a manipulator of the media, and he and he puts that forward as one of his greatest attributes. So mm. you know, it's hard to draw any definitive conclusions from a media interview. I think yeah. when yeah. when he's himself said that that's one of his one of the things he's good at. Mm. Um, but but I, I instinctively had a similar feeling to you in that I, I thought the actual calendar interview was, was quite balanced and there was a lot more obvious respect between the two men than mm. there is in either the film or the book of, of the situation. Yeah, and there's there's like scenes that seem to be invented in the film which don't appear and certainly didn't appear in the TV interview that I saw and the, the sort of tension between them was ramped up in, in yeah I, th- I think i think they do some of that to get some of the extra information that, that maybe occurs in other scenes mm. in the book into the film yeah yeah no I, I did i did think that was interesting although i guess in in response to you saying i mean i agree with you like clough was a self-confessed media manipulator um and a lot of his best one-liners were one-liners that he spent a lot of time um honing in practice before he delivered them but I would have thought that a, an interview that was given immediately after he was fired wouldn't have given wouldn't have given him a huge amount of scope to be able to actually prepare too much. And and two, I mean, yeah, obviously he was still going to be good um, at, at manipulating the media just without too much preparation, presumably. But I get the impression that he wouldn't have had a huge amount of time to really sit down and think, right, how am I going to come across here? And also, he was presumably quite uh, shocked and 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 uh, emotionally impacted by the sacking too. And I think he still comes across as quite well in that in that interview. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, I think he does. I, I, th- I think I also I also don't think Revy comes across particularly badly in that interview itself. I think they both mm. come across as people with who each have valid points. And mm. um, because I mean, when, when Revy says at the start, "Why didn't you sit the players down and meet them?" I mean, mm. Clough doesn't really have a good answer for that, does he? Yeah, I guess he comes off out and says. I was, I mean, Revy's thing seems to be like, why didn't you sit down with the whole club and have right. a full club meeting with everyone there, sit them down and say, this is what I'm going to do. And he said, well, I was going to do that slowly. I was, I, I, I ran the training session with the players that day uh, and then I was going to go from there. And um, I guess from from that point of view, the, the, the really interesting thing I think that you get from that interview is how there's this there's this line that keeps coming up where they're like I think it's a bad day for football it always kind of this sort of notion of like the the sort of sacred standards in which you hold football in um and I think that part of the problem is is that that sort of just deflects from so much from the fact that in many respects you know Revy ran the club in a very specific way and the club was just never really able to um recover from that because whoever would have come in I think probably would have, have, have been a disappointment I think there's there's definitely a comparison to be made with post Ferguson Manchester United in that respect um, and it feels as though you know Clough was was just happened to be the fall guy in this case but um yeah I, I, again I so so with with Revy I sort of get you get this impression that he's like oh you know this this club these boys they're my family I used to massage them after they played and stuff um, and you didn't come in immediately and take that position as a father figure within 44 days um and I guess that, that kind of annoys me because it, it just it kind of makes me think you know the club the club was sort of resting on its laurels to a to a huge extent, and I think there's as much an angle there for for saying actually the the failure and the breakdown between Clough and the players was as much to do with the the, the sort of um, atmosphere and um, and ideology that John Don Revy had set in place before he left as well, um, and they had this whole sort of everyone hates us, we're just a, a 
constantly um, uh, maligned club. Everyone wants to beat us. Um, all officials are against us. We still see that today. And I guess my frustration comes from the fact that actually, had it had there been a different attitude at the club and had um, someone like Clough been able to come into the club, it might have been the perfect anecdote to the fact that the the, the club had never managed to win a, Euro- a European Cup before, for example, which obviously Clough goes on to do at Nottingham Forest. So there's loads of ideas in there, but... No, it was an interesting uh, miss misstep that you made when you said it'd be an intri- it would have been a, a good anecdote for the situation. It did end up as a good anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, all, that's almost all plus time at Leeds amounted to an anecdote. Yeah, no, that and I find that so fascinating though because like we just sort of dis- dismissed him. We don't even think of him as being a Leeds manager, right? Yeah, um, I, I think what you were saying at the start there about. Um, how the uh, about how Revy seemed unable to accept that you know him not immediately creating the exact same culture again, but around himself rather than around Revy. Mm. Uh, I think I think back then there must have been even less of a sort of standardised way of doing things at football clubs as well. So it must have been even weirder for managers to go to different clubs, like in the. It's, it did seem like everyone was kind of out on a limb and doing things for themselves back in those, those days, like uh, in terms of how clubs were administered and how they were, how budgets were assigned and all these kind of things. It, it must be impossible to even have a view of what normal is back then. So, so, so you know, in Revy's mind, and I think in Clough's mind as well, they, they both seem, they don't, neither of them seem like particularly empathetic people. Uh, like they, they both have their way that they believe is the right way. And I think that probably extends to all elements of the football club. So for Revy, it probably was absolutely inconceivable that Clough's going to come in and not do all this stuff that he just sees as the only way to do football management. And I think Clough, certainly from the, from the film and the book, I mean, I don't know how much reality there is to this, but it feels to me like um, Brian Clough is is he li- his his greatest moments uh, moments of improvisation, their moments of um, sort of off the cuff genius. You know, with his way of talking to people, with his way of persuading people, with his way of ex- inspiring people. And Revy's almost the opposite. Revy is all about meticulous preparation, about mm. you know dotting the, dotting the i's, crossing the t's. And I think to an extent in in, in both the book and the film, uh, Clough, you know, sees the things that he could never do in Revy. And that's partly why he hates him so much, because, mm. you know, he here's this planner, here's this guy who can concentrate long enough to do all this planning. And Clough's, you know, got all these millions of, millions of ideas in his head. He, you know, he's always shooting for the next thing, trying to sign the next player. Um, and I think he sort of, he recognises the kind of genius that he could never have in Revy. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the the film does a pretty good job actually of recognising that Clough needs a Revy himself, and that's where the role of Peter Taylor comes in, right? Where you have Taylor sort of being the the balance, the foil against the the genius, and and the I guess the film's big argument is you thought you were the genius when really it was it was a combination of you and peter taylor that that really worked um so yeah it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that as well yeah it, it was inter- earlier on you were talking about how no one really comes off well um and and, and peter taylor's sort of in that in-between zone where he, he does come across better than most um but uh you know, separate to that, the people who do actually come across well in the film and the book, because they're not mentioned very much, but the, but they're the absolute victims. So Eddie Gray comes across well in the film because he he does just come across as this. He's barely in, uh, sorry, in the book rather than the film. He's barely in it. But the one scene is is the scene where Clough tells him that you know. Uh, if you're a racehorse, you would have been taken out the back and shot. And you feel so sad for Eddie Gray. Like he just seems like this, um, just this lovely sort of 
docile. Uh, you think of him as a horse because that's how Clough talks. That's the only time he's mentioned is mm. this uh, this lame horse that's carrying all these injuries. And then you all, you have a similar thing with Alf Ramsey, who none of his triumphs get mentioned at any point during the book. Uh, he only gets mentioned when he's when he's struggling and when he's old and when you know he's got no ideas anymore. And Clough's just uh, willing him to lose his job. So I, think, I feel like there were there might be I feel like there are a few more characters like that that the absolute victims. They're the ones. They're the only ones who mm. come across well because they're the only ones that Clough doesn't hate. <laughs> mm. Yeah, this really interesting character trait I think in in Clough that is given, which is this notion that I don't know. It it almost feels as though Clough sees everyone as fair game, and a lot. I think a lot of the time that comes across as Clough being considered to be arrogant or being um, just being a, a sort of self centered and individualist man, but. The impression that, again, that I've got from, I've not read the whole book, but reading through the book, you do get the sense that, you know, he 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 does have like a certain level of perfectionism to him. He he does see every every step that other people are achieving as like something to aim for, and and, and it's almost as though his his lack of expectation for for individuals in the book is is something that is comes from not from him just wanting to diminish people but actually wanting things to be better than they are he, i mean he describes himself as an idealist right um and i think that idealism like this view that the world can always be better often comes across as being just rude and and belligerent to, to people who don't have the same worldview and i thought i think that comes across maybe maybe not so much in the film but i thought it came across a bit more in the book uh, i don't know if you would agree with that yeah i mean i think there's a def yeah there's there's a definite um sort of gap between um sober focused uh driven cluff and you know mm. nighttime drunken hotel bar uh ranting a raving cluff and i think they use he they use the motif of the alcohol which is probably exaggerated quite a lot mm. uh, they use that as almost like a, a signature for when he's when he's in a dark place mentally and they use a similar sort of motif with them he talks about there's a lot of stuff about cortisone in the book like they talk about how you know when the players are in a bad place physically they get given cortisone and and that seems to be contrasted with the alcohol he sees alcohol as cortisone for the for the heart and the brain going back to the question of like who comes out well what i find so interesting about the the film is that at the, at the end of the film you know it feels as though cloth is at like his lowest place etc and don revy is sort of held up as this paragon and yet at that moment i feel as though that's the point at which the the fortunes of those two guys change right um revy goes on to uh, manage england unsuccessfully ends up in the middle east gets caught up in this bribery scandal and then ends up dying a few uh, years later of uh, motor neurone disease whereas with with clough you sort of get the opposite trajectory in terms of his career in that he then goes to forest takes them to the top division and then wins the european cup two years in a row with them um and i do i find that so fascinating because i think again i've i've mentioned um the intro to this that i have a lot of friends who who are maybe a bit younger who will have come across clough and revy pretty much only through these films or through the books and there's the, the sort of general attitude that we we see from like young leeds fans is revy is oh, maybe older leeds fans as well um 
well, obviously all the Leeds fans, but like Revy was the great manager and then Clough was just an arrogant guy who um, uh, who sort of got what was coming to him and that's that. Uh, but the, the history after that I find so fascinating because it, there's, there's clearly more to Clough than, than I think a lot of Leeds fans are willing to give him credit for, understandably, I think. But if you look at Clough's career, I mean, Leeds was pretty much the only stain really on it in terms of what he achieved with clubs. Um, and and in both, both times he took... Um, small clubs into the Premier League and then took them a long way in Europe as well. Um, and I wonder whether or not you... Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's certainly something about Clough, which is that that underdog mentality. And there's, a, there's a bit of Mourinho about Clough, I think, in the sense that he needs to be an underdog. He, know, he needs that mentality that, you know, everyone hates his whatever. Um, and that works out well for him. Um, and, you know, Clough was genuinely a brilliant manager. And I, I think... A lot of people at Leeds just don't think of Clough as even being a Leeds manager, let alone a, um, a, a great manager. And I find that that whole aspect of it fascinating. It's understandable that he wouldn't be thought of as a Leeds manager because, I mean, yeah. do we really think of Darko Milinic as a Leeds manager? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's not a million miles away. But uh, the um, regarding the uh, how he comes across in that way, what, what, what I think is easy to forget is that at the point that Leeds hired him, he'd only won one league title. So it wasn't mm. like they were hiring the Brian Clough who won back-to-back European Cups. So, and I, and I think that's a, a thing that sometimes gets forgotten in the, oh, I can't believe they let Brian Clough slip through their fingers mm, in, and yeah. they, they uh, you know, why didn't they give him more time? This, you know, this brilliant man who'd done so much and he had done a lot, but he had also, you know, it'd be like, try to think of an example. I mean, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of examples. Well, I mean, you, can't, you don't think, nowadays no one does, you know, but it, it, maybe, maybe a little bit like if, um, Liverpool had sat Brendan Rodgers sooner than they did or something like that or I mean even that doesn't work because he didn't win anything did he but um, like maybe Chris Wilder might be a good example just hiring Chris Wilder on the back of his success in the championship and then having a good season in the Premier League yeah yeah something like that um and 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 there wouldn't be so many uh there wouldn't be so so much interrogation of it if you then sacked him I think mm. I think the interrogation intensifies because he obviously turned out to be an incredible manager and won you know won back-to-back European Cups so um then then you're always going to look back and say was he the one that got away mm. maybe maybe Moyes is a better um correlate for that you know as in having a fairly decent career at Everton and then replacing Ferguson and just not being successful. <laughs> yeah, and then he goes to Real Sociedad and wins back-to-back European Cups. Yeah, well, that's the little <laughs> the, the little known part of the David Moyes story, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, well, maybe you just, to, given that we're, we're on the history of it, I, I wonder how much of the, of the history of both the book and the film you actually trust. I, I've not done a huge amount of the historiography on it, and, um, and obviously both are works of fiction, um, but... Again, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? With with a work of uh, of historical fiction that is so popular, and there isn't a huge amount of, um, uh, I, I guess, there's not a huge amount of people I think for, who are Leeds fans who go back and check out the history. Although I'm sure Daniel Chapman's book on um, Leeds will will have cast some light on that. I should have gone back and read that section c- c- before this, but I didn't get around to doing it. But um, It'd be interesting to see how he came across. I think he probably comes across as a bit more sympathetic and maybe a bit more critical of Revy than a lot of Leeds fans. I certainly, um, I certainly know that Anthony Clavain's stuff is is quite critical of not critical of Revy, but maybe a little bit more level headed, uh, suggesting you know that the, the Revy era wasn't as as um, 
uh, as maybe as successful as we like to paint it in in hindsight but i don't know if you've got any uh, any thoughts on the history do you trust the the history do you um do you take the history on face value in terms of the actual stuff that's said i mean you've mentioned the eddie gray being told that if he was a horse he'd get taken out and shot and then there's the medals being thrown in the dustbin and stuff like that are you pretty happy that all of those sorts of things happened well as far as i'm aware those those specific two things that you said are two of the verified quotes you know there's multiple people have said that it happened at least enough for it to be accepted that something very similar to that happened um i mean the fi- the film plays around with the timeline a lot like uh, it makes things happen at different times it uh, has people signing all together you know he makes three signings for derby county at once instead of making them over a period of months and that's you know that's fair enough films need to do that kind of thing to stay a reasonable length um uh but I don't know. I mean, I don't think you can write a book like this and have it be historically definitely factually accurate. I mean, mm. it, it's written in a combination of the first person and second person. There's no, mm. there's no outside voice, so you're essentially just pretending to be Brian Clough for 350 pages. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, I, I don't think uh, you know. It's like um, I really enjoy um, Hilary Mantel's uh, Cromwell novels. Mm. Um, in fact, I stopped reading The Mirror and the Light to read The Damned United this week, uh, but. I don't expect her to know exactly what was going on inside Thomas Cromwell's head. It is fiction, you know, whatever you're going to say about it. Yeah, creative nonfiction, I guess. There's that whole movement of of American journalism that was doing that. And um, I I've personally find that sort of approach fascinating because I think in in saying something fictional about someone you can still be saying something true about someone um and you still have that context wherein there is a suspension of disbelief i think if you read the damned united i don't think you should be coming out of that being like everything that happened in this book is purely factual um but you can you can see that david peace is doing something in there um which is interesting and and i think to a certain extent true in that he's raising questions about what was the the psychological experience of going through what um Clough went through like how did what was the what was the weight of that what did it, what impact did it have on him and and how can you how can you understand what we see step back from that um in a, in a more psychological way and I think that's l- largely useful I, I guess I, I would question and I'd ask the question to you do you think that he maybe hammed it up a little bit I, mean, I think the same of the film which is just sort of the problem with the film for me is that the film just sort of has this really obvious angle which is Brian Clough's really arrogant and then by the end of the film he realises that a lot of it's to do with Peter Taylor and there's a sort of denouement there's a sort of arc which is oh actually you know if it hadn't been for Leeds maybe Clough wouldn't have been brilliant enough to be able to then go on and win the European Cups with Nottingham Forest at the point at which he realises Peter Taylor is his important foil do you think that's sort of too hammed up and, and what do you think the hammed up aspect of the book is um, if, if the film is the, the, the Taylor and, and Clough relationship I think it probably is a little bit hammed up yeah I mean I, I'm not enough of a student of film to know how they could do it differently or better really um, mm. and as a standalone film as I said the first couple of times I watched it I enjoyed it as a film so um regard regarding the book um i think i think what what you realize in the book is that that taylor isn't i mean not having peter taylor at the club is not the reason why he fails at leeds he fails at he fails at the brian clough things like mm. he fails at getting the players on side he fails at um at convincing the players to buy in to 
to well not even to what he wants them to do just to the idea of him because mm. that's what they did at derby that you know that's that's what he really gets off on is the book and that and that is probably what is hammed up a little bit is the sort of the hero worship side of it like he loves he loves people calling him cluffy like there's a, there's a lot of motifs quite towards the end uh, when he's been when he's left derby but he's hoping to be rehired you know he's he's he's, he's fucked up basically by resigning when he, he didn't think they'd accept the resignation and, and there's a lot mm. of stu- there's a lot of like resurrection sort of a references and stuff you know uh immaculate cluffy resurrected things like that and and yeah. he, he um that, that that's the bit that's hammed up if anything i think the, this idea that everyone has to love him and everyone has to worship him hmm. um, life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But, but yeah, as I say, like in, 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 the, in the book reading of it, he, he doesn't fail. It wouldn't have made any difference if you had Peter Taylor there because he didn't need to sign loads of players, which was Peter Taylor's strength. What he needed to do was somehow make the players not hate him. Mm. Yeah, there's a few things I'd say to that. I think in some sense, my disappointment with the book, and again, it's a very good book, and it's like, as you said, it's literary, right? It feels literary, which a lot of books about football don't. And I think that's a real testament to Peter's ability to write, that he can write a book like that, and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like anything else you've read in football writing, really. Um, yeah. But I guess, again, my the, the, the impression that you get of Clough is that he's just not very self-aware, um, in a way that I think is just unrealistic, you know, it's 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 almost like he's got a megalomania, which I, it, it doesn't feel like he is is able to step back and and criticize himself. Which I don't think I, I don't know. I, I just don't find very convincing because I think maybe a more interesting approach to Clough would have been a, a bit more of a tortured Clough. Where I mean, obviously this is a tortured Clough in in the piece adaptation, right? But it's it's not really it's not even really that he questions himself all the way through it. It's that all of that self-doubt is is translated into i guess criticism of others mm. and and i'm sure i'm sure that clough was was not as confident as he was internally that he as he gives um as he gives externally um and and so for me it just sort of feels a bit it feels just a bit too easy to be like oh look here's a tortured sort of like alcoholic guy who goes through all these dark periods and yet when you actually engage with those dial well monologues that he has with himself it doesn't he doesn't ever step back and be like it's, it's like the simpsons simpsons means meme there's never a moment where it's like <laughs> what, what am i out of touch no it's the kids who are wrong yeah. he never even has that moment and i think right. maybe that would be an, an improvement yeah when he does it's very very brief it's like you know one or two sentences and then he's straight back on that train uh, uh, i i am yeah I, I i think you're right but i think it's also there is there is something that the that the book does by virtue of that in that i really enjoy 
enjoyed the first half of the book like and i was but then i started to i started to get a little bit bogged down with it and I, I was still enjoying it, but I sort of wanted it to end. And as as it goes on and on, it almost, because it's so monotonous and, and every chapter is basically told in the same style and it's quite a, it's quite a fatiguing style. It's it, 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 lots of very short sentences, but, but and, it, and it hammers the same points over and over again. And you sort of, you want to, you, you want to be free of it by the end. You, you want to, you want to read something lighter. You want to feel something lighter. And I think that's how Clough's feeling. So I think there is something about it doesn't change at all. It just goes and goes and goes. And the only way you can be rid of it being like that is to leave Leeds United. Another thought that I had was um, this this sense that there's so much there's so much sort of like weight put on Clough's actions and 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 that being the reason why um, Clough eventually fails. It's all sort of put down like what what could Clough have done differently to make sure that the whole thing worked out and. I always wonder, just looking back, whether or not it was just always fated to be like that way, as if as if there was any one anyone who could have done anything differently to what Clough had done, um, or whether or not Clough could have done things any differently and, and got better results as well. Um, which I think is a really interesting because so much of this is like over. We, we it's over. It's made over individualistic. There's an agency there that people think well. You know, there was always possible that someone could come in after Revy and and um, and and turn things around. But we've seen, I've already mentioned Ferguson, that hasn't happened. Post Arsene Wenger as well. These are these are the same sorts of figures as as Revy. These are guys who are in control of everything, top down at the club. And as soon as they leave, we see the whole structure collapsing because because they go. I I don't know whether or not it's worth having that that conversation about how much we think that actually it was just always going to be the case that Clough was going to fail. Maybe he failed failed more spectacularly than he might have done. But was he was was he always going to end up with problems at some point? Because so much of this comes down to the players, right? The players just seem unwilling to to deal with Clough, and that may be because Clough was unwilling to deal with them. But there's there's also like there's also other people in this in this story of failure. I think. Well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to um, what you know. What were the actual expectations? Did the Leeds board expect to win the league again? Or you know, if 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 after seven or eight games, Clifford have been in sixth, seventh position, would that have been fine, or would he still have been under pressure? I don't know. Uh, so I think a lot of it comes down to you know you always hear about back in the sixties and seventies boards were a lot more patient managers were given more time and stuff like that I don't know if that applies in this situation or not did you know had had Leeds had, because Leeds had finished in the top four for ten seasons in a row which was you know which was pretty much unheard of back then um, would would they have accepted anything less than you know continuance like unbroken continuance of excellence or or would would they have accepted you know a sort of upper mid table position mm, yeah i don't know um and it's i mean i guess that's it's interesting in that respect too because it does feel so modern in that regard doesn't it like a a manager arriving and then failing in such a short space of time um it's hard to imagine any other club at that in that period even doing that um and again it may be a sign that you know that a lot of the problems were as much structural to Leeds United as they were to to Brian Clough yeah i mean uh, the one of the other things that i thought the 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 um both the film and the book were about a little bit was about um yorkshire versus the northeast and and the and the stereotypical way of looking at it is that the northeast is a very positive optimistic place and yorkshire is a very pragmatic um not not pessimistic but kind of um 
yeah, I don't know if pessimistic, a sort of a much more, a much less optimistic place, basically, than the northeast, where, um, where, where everyone seems to always be striving for something. Yorkshire, it seems more about trying not to lose what you've got. And, I'm not, and I think that, and, and the cliff of the book certainly talks about how much he hates Yorkshire all the time. He talks about Yorkshire zombies and, um, uh, you know, th- these disgusting Yorkshire zombies spitting phlegm all over my pitch and things like that. And, uh, you know, these grey Yorkshire skies. Yeah, exactly. In the film, it makes a big thing of that as well, you know, turning up and basically the first thing being like, I wish I was back in Mallorca, essentially, yeah. Yeah. because this Yorkshire weather's awful. But, yeah. Um, We've got some questions that we should work through that we just threw down. So um, in terms of the book versus the film, you've asked uh, whether or not the film, a film in the much darker style of the book would have worked, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I think it probably would have worked. Um, and I would probably have liked to have seen that. I guess there's moments where they try and make, make bring out the dark side of things. But I think a lot of it, like you said, is it, it's sort of trying to do uh, as much as it can to express that sort of jovial side of Clough's nature. And there's only a few moments where you find him ringing Don Revy late at night um, on whiskey. There's not much. There's not much more. I don't think than that lowest moment really. Um, and even yeah. like after he's sacked, it, they sort of make him out to be like, oh well, it's over now. Like let's get on with things. Yeah, I think I think it could have been made, and it and it probably would have been a good film. But it would be possibly even more disrespectful to the Clough family for a start. Mm. And I'm not sure it, w- it wouldn't have been able to have the same audience that it ended up having. I guess mm. we've got some other questions about aesthetics as well. So um, the soundtrack, how does the soundtrack affect the tenor of the film? And even just thinking back over this, I don't, it's not like a it's not even really like I feel like it's a notable soundtrack. It's not, I don't think back on it. And well, this was one thing that I really noticed re-watching the okay. film after i'd after i'd read the book was that the sound check is by far the most the most jaunty upbeat thing about the film mm. i think if you took the soundtrack off completely the film would actually seem a bit darker because the soundtrack's all like <laughs> like all you know kind of um yeah, it's like pussycat pussycat that that song as well it's well like yeah seven, that as well yeah like and 60s, yeah yeah I, I mean more the incidental music like it's all right. kind of um uh you know that sort of music at the at the start of the west wing or, or something like that where it's people walking around corridors and everything's bustling and yeah like, yeah, like yeah. it's it's that sort of um annoying optimistic music um which i think it lends a kind of buffoonish sort of a light-heartedness yeah. to bits that aren't even without the music anything like that buffoonish is a good word actually because i do think that the portrayal of cloth is quite buffoonish really in in the film um and i wonder whether or not if you even if you re-soundtracked the film whether or not it would change the tenor of that at all I, th- I think it could to an extent. I mean, obviously, it's not going to completely change the film, and, and maybe I'm biased being someone who works in audio. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question as well about casting, um, particularly how unathletic the, fa- the actors portraying the footballers are. Um, you said, is this deliberate or just budget related? Yeah, I think it's interesting. But then, uh, Mike, was it Michael Sheen is an ex-Arsenal schoolboy, and I think Martin is it Martin Compson who plays the guy in the guy in Call of Duty now. I think he's ex-Arsenal as well. So mm. there were a few like very good footballers on the cast yeah it's less how good there is footballers it was just that even even in the 70s where obviously the players were nowhere near as fit as they are now <laughs> they looked like people who who you know who ran every day whereas i didn't feel you know uh i can't remember the guy's name from this is england who played billy bremner yeah steve stephen graham is, is yeah stephen like graham yeah i mean his performance was fine he barely does anything but you don't believe that he's a professional footballer do you <laughs> <laughs> no but i guess if we'd have seen billy bremner on film 
now we probably wouldn't well i have seen billy bremner on film and he and he looks he, he, he still <laughs> looked like he played football every day you know <laughs> yeah maybe yeah i mean he yeah he doesn't look quite so unathletic i'll give you that but he did look odd as, as well right um yeah i think that's i think it's really hard i think to get sports well done that's sort of what i mean because um you know if this was a film that that had a mega budget like a big a big disney film or you know a marvel film or something mm. all those people they basically get paid to go away and get in incredible shape for a few months before they do those yeah. films but you know you can't do that with a film like this can you which is why i mentioned budget i'm thinking about like um ford versus ferrari and you know you make these films where you want to be like look these guys are racing cars and it just seems like there's so little you can actually do in terms of cinematographics to just make you have to be like oh look here's their feet changing gears and and you just do the same sort of clips over and over again i think the same sort of true in football because it's never going to look it's never going to look as good as as the actual reality even so i i kind of felt the same way a little bit about uncut gems i don't know if you've seen that but that's got kevin garner in it the the professional basketballer and it's got some clips from actual professional basketball and even just being in the context of a film you just think now that doesn't look as good as professional sport but it's- i know what you mean i'm a huge huge fan of that film um so i've seen i've seen that several times uh, but yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean but i did i did feel in the damned united the sections of football action where they used actual archive footage worked a lot better than yeah. the sections where they tried to you know film the actual actors playing football yeah i agree totally because especially um, as well because it's a lot of it's a lot of it's done with just really bad sound effects as well it's like <laughs> and then as they like slide in and then well the, and yeah. the lighting and stuff it looked like a sort of a powerade advert or something you know like <laughs> yeah. really extreme sort of blue lighting and yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have to zoom yeah. right in right because they obviously can't afford like a full stadium of fans <laughs> and stuff so everything's like really close in and yeah it just doesn't look doesn't look uh, authentic in any way what about the 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 book the style of the book we've not really talked about the style of the book that much you've you've mentioned that it's written in um current events written in first person flashbacks are in second person uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that well i i thought that was interesting and that it's almost like um the, the the bits that are in first person that's that's you that's that's Clough's hell that he's living right now and uh, second person it's almost it is like it is it's not it's not the Clough of now it's like it is a different person mm. and 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 I'm, I'm I think I always think it's interesting in any literature when the author chooses to use the second person because it's 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 not used often at all um especially as someone who used to read a lot of choose your own adventure books as a kid <laughs> it's, 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 it's always fun uh but um yeah yeah the, the you is like it's almost like the ideal you isn't it like the old derby the old the cluff of derby he he's the ideal and and that's you that's you reading the book and you can look in on this hell that's me i am the book yeah and i guess maybe an interesting place to go from there might be in comparing the the book and the film in terms of their their pacing and timing and stuff like that because the the film itself is quite interesting in that it goes backwards and forwards and you you sort of you're sort of given the problem and then given solutions to that problem by constantly going in flashback and being like oh now i see why peter taylor and and uh cloth have fallen out now i see why it might be the case that you might think about cloth badly here and then change your opinion or vice versa uh, and i think that's quite interesting as well um so how did you how did you feel about the the pacing of the film in that respect? No, I thought it, I thought it worked well. Like it, it's always going to be difficult to to make any narrative that is pretty evenly split between two different times. Uh, it's you know it's not like a there's there's the odd flashback here and there. It's pretty much half and half uh, between present day and flashback. So mm. um I think I think it requires a little bit of skill to do that in any medium. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, and I think, you know, maybe we've been, I don't know, maybe for, for me anyway, I think I, I sound as though I'm, I'm quite critical of both the book and the film, but I think both of them are great and in their own way um, and certainly um, would recommend them to anyone. I just wondered how you would go about recommending either the book or the film to the friends, what you would say, how you, you would describe them and how you might recommend the book and the film given that they're, this, they're, they're linked but not the same. Like, would, would you say, I watched the book first and then watch the film or would you say, watch the film, watch the book, don't watch the film? How would you describe it to a friend like that? It's, well, it's almost the opposite of the usual thing. Uh, people always say normally read the book first, but I, I would say watch the film first because I feel like having read the book, it, the film suffers, but I don't think the book suffers from having seen the film. Mm. Uh, and, and because you already know the story, you already know what happens. So it's not it's not that usual thing where, you know, you, you don't want to spoil finding the actual story out while reading the book. It, mm. That doesn't matter. You know what happened. So yeah, yeah. I think I would agree with you there. I think I would say watch the film first, and then if you enjoyed it, then maybe read the book. I think the, maybe the book isn't for everyone, but I think the film is. Um, and I actually think it's quite it's quite a good example of a, of a football film that I would be happy to recommend. And I think mainly that's because it's not really about football, right? It's about what happens off the pitch. It's, it's not a film about what happens on the pitch. It's about it's about what happens off the pitch. But um, I would probably say that. Whereas I think the the book itself. I don't know. It's, it's it's certainly written in a. We've already mentioned a, a sort of literary um, voice, and um, I I think that's great. And I'd, I'd love to read more stuff like that, but I don't think that's for everyone. But the only thing I would add is that I would not necessarily recommend reading this book if you're in lockdown and you're finding yourself <laughs> doing jobs that you ordinarily wouldn't want to do, such as uh, such as homeschooling your son, because. On Tuesday, I was almost feeling ready to smash up a hotel room, just like Clough in the book. <laughs> what better recommendation for the uh, the the Danji United phenomena can you possibly expect to find? But Tom, it's been great having you on. Hopefully, we'll have you on in other things in the future as well. Um, if people want to follow you, where can they do that? What's the best way that people can connect with you on social media? Um, I've got a, Twitter's the best one. I'm at TD Woodhead, um, and I've also got a Medium blog where I do my pretentious writing about Leeds United, which is uh, if you just search for a screaming comes across the sky Leeds United you'll find that and uh, yeah there's a link to that on my Twitter blog as well cool um, it's great to be finally recording again Josh and I are going to be doing some other things uh, in the near future Josh has been quite busy because um, his work is centered around uh the christian religious calendar and it's been easter so he's been busy last week um but this week we've got a few things coming up we're going to do a patreon uh episode for you guys so we're going to split that between looking at um whisper it replacements for marcelo bielsa but also we're going to look at a potential um team of the season in the championship given that the afl just put out their team um other than that i should say that there are a few other things that we were going to do i think we're going to do another watch along um episode so um we'll probably put a poll out at some point for that but i think we josh and i got a bit fed up of watching 2000s football so we'll maybe do a more recent one. Oh, there was a, i think there was a, maybe a suggestion we could do bielsa um at, at athletic club um as well but again thank you so much for listening in um thanks again to tom for coming on and we will be with you in your ears again soon
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.